X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, December 7th, a day that will live in infamy. Today, back in the day, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed. 7.55 in the morning, Hawaii time, a Japanese dive bomber bearing the red symbol of the rising sun of Japan on its wings appeared out of the clouds above the island of Oahu. A swarm of 360 Japanese warplanes followed, descending on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in a ferocious assault. When diplomatic negotiations with Japan had begun to break down, President Franklin Roosevelt and his advisors knew that an imminent Japanese attack was possible, but nothing had been done to increase security at the important naval base at Pearl Harbor. In 1941, December 7th fell on a Sunday and many military personnel have been given passes to attend religious services off-base. At 7.02 in the morning, two radar operators spotted large groups of aircraft in flight toward the island from the north. But with a flight of B-17s expected from the United States at the time, they were told not to sound an alarm. Thus, the Japanese air assault came as a devastating surprise. Five of eight battleships, three destroyers, seven other ships were sunk or severely damaged. More than 200 aircraft destroyed. A total of 2,400 Americans were killed, 1,200 were wounded. The surprise attack took a big bite out of the U.S. Pacific Fleet and drew the United States into World War II. By the way, December 2nd, 2020, 2,885 Americans died of the coronavirus. The next day, 2,857. The next day, 2,637. Today, back in the day, December 7th, 1928, Noam Chomsky was born. Noam Chomsky in full, Avram Noam Chomsky, was the American theoretical linguist whose work from the 1950s revolutionized the field of linguistics by treating language as a uniquely human, biologically-based cognitive capacity. Through his contributions to linguistics and related fields, including cognitive psychology and the philosophies of mind and language, Chomsky helped to initiate and sustain what came to be known as the Cognitive Revolution. Chomsky also gained a worldwide following as a political dissident for his analyses of the influence of economic elites on U.S. domestic politics, foreign policy, and intellectual culture. Today we'll have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview from Elena Seskin, founder of Una Pluma, a local business. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Two Oregon doctors have had their licenses suspended over violations of state medical standards. Dr. Stephen Latulip spoke at a pro-Trump rally in November. That doesn't get your license suspended. He did tell the crowd that he does not wear a mask in his clinic and he encourages others to go maskless as well. Under state order, healthcare workers are required to wear a face mask in healthcare settings. And last Thursday, the Oregon Medical Board voted to suspend LaTulip's license to practice medicine immediately. He had been practicing in his own family clinic in Dallas, Oregon. Multnomah County Republican Party posted a YouTube video where he told the crowd, I and my staff, none of us, not once, wore a mask in my clinic. And according to him, he has treated about 80 patients for COVID-19. Meanwhile, the nationally famous anti-vaxxer Dr. Paul Thomas had his license suspended due to violations of vaccination practices. Thomas has a popular YouTube channel, a best-selling book on Amazon. He promotes a discredited theory that vaccines cause autism. And last Thursday, his license got suspended on an emergency basis. The board based this decision on evidence that Thomas had been convincing parents to withhold vaccinating their children. Some of these patients became sick from vaccine-preventable illnesses, allegedly as a result of following his advice. According to a statement by the mother of two twins who had contracted the rotavirus, she had believed her children had received the vaccine. And now investigators are trying to find out if Thomas actively withheld vaccines from patients even if they had requested them. Medical board asserts that he is responsible of, and I'm quoting, 90 acts of gross and repeated negligence in violation of Oregon law. And now your daily dose of data. The OHA reported 1,290 new cases of COVID-19 on Sunday. The state's case total is now 84,496. 
Sunday also saw six deaths in Oregon. Our death toll has reached 1,033. Good news, though. Vaccines are coming soon. Here's what you should know. Officials say that the first shipments of the vaccine should be reaching Oregon in a few weeks with enough doses to fully vaccinate 100,000 people. The OHA expects about 76,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine and nearly 72,000 doses from Moderna by December 22nd. The vaccines require two doses spread out by four weeks to be effective. The first shipments are meant to be the first dose, while another shipment at the end of the month will be the second dose for early recipients. After some time, as more vaccines are produced and approved, more doses will be distributed to the general public. The first recipients will be medical workers and residents and workers of long-term communal care settings. Joe Sullivan of the OHA said that high-priority individuals will be fully vaccinated by March. In terms of racial disparity, the OHA is forming an advisory committee to determine the most equitable distribution of the vaccine. Communities of color in Oregon are affected disproportionately by the virus. The biggest challenge will be setting up the ultra-cold storage for the vaccines, which need to be kept at negative 70 degrees Celsius. Otherwise, experts are confident in the safety of the vaccines. The FDA will decide on emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine on the 10th and the Moderna vaccine on the 17th. Jobless workers continue to receive misinformation from Oregon computers, and it's not going to stop soon. Nine months into the pandemic, almost that, the Oregon Employment Department is still massively backlogged. Unemployed workers who try to reach the OED for information about relief often get no response or misinformation. The vast majority of jobless workers have been receiving unemployment payments, but individuals are struggling with a lack of communication about benefits. Over $6 billion has been paid to more than 600,000 jobless Oregonians since March. One issue stems from the outdated computers. They automatically sent out redundant, even incorrect letters to unemployed people. One former gym worker says that after a month of silence from the department, she got 27 letters in a single day that all told her she had filed her claim improperly. The next day, she received 34 separate checks containing a reported total of nearly $12,000. The employment department spent over $3 million in postage in the first nine months of 2020. And due to that obsolete computer system, mail is often the only way the department communicates with claimants. And don't get me wrong, I love mail. But if you send somebody a text or an email saying you got money for them, there's a pretty good chance they're going to reply to that too. Communications Director of the Department, Melanie Rosales, said in an email that Appointment Department agrees that our customer communications need to be improved. Department's issues with decades-old computers that make mistakes that have to be manually corrected by workers, which takes a huge amount of time. In 2009, Oregon got $86 million from the federal government to upgrade the computer system, but that money never got put towards new computers. Department is now looking into vendors, but doesn't expect an upgrade until 2025. Governor Brown is looking to postpone Measure 110 funding. Oregon voters approved Measure 110 in November, which promised to put at least $57 million into addiction recovery and treatment services in its first year with more funds in the future. In a two-year budget proposal released on Tuesday, Governor Brown suggested a delay of those funds until July of 2022. Drug possession would still be decriminalized, but treatment options would not receive the expanded funding that voters approved of. The governor's office says that the money is needed for other priorities. The fund would come from cannabis tax dollars, which currently goes to schools, state police, and local governments. 
Brown's office also claims that the OHA may not be ready to spend the money at all in time for next year. Supporters of Measure 110 are calling on lawmakers to reject Brown's proposal, saying that it goes against what Oregonians voted for. Under the measure, addiction recovery centers are supposed to be funded and operational by October of next year. The West Lynn chief of police has been fired. City announced that Teddy Kruger was fired last Friday. Peter Mahuna will continue to serve as the acting chief as the city serves for a permanent replacement. Kruger will get three months of severance pay as part of his firing. Kruger served as the West Lynn chief of police since 2018. He was paid a $600,000 settlement placed on leave due to his involvement in a racially motivated arrest. Back in 2017, Michael Fesser, a black man, was arrested without probable cause by Portland police officers at the direction of West Lynn police officers. Fesser was being surveilled after his boss, Eric Benson, asked the former police chief, Terry Timmius, to investigate Fesser. Benson accused Fesser of stealing, had a close relationship with Timmius as well as with Kruger. Oregon's U.S. Attorney's Office also announced an ongoing investigation into the incident for criminal wrongdoing. And finally, some good news. A Portland nonprofit is helping to bring soccer to homeless youth. Many youth soccer organizations follow a pay-to-play model, which makes them inaccessible for the most disadvantaged youth. Street Soccer Portland is a nonprofit dedicated to providing spaces, coaches, and tournaments for young players who otherwise couldn't afford these things. Jose Campos, the program development manager for Street Soccer Portland, says that the organization works with 330 kids every year in Portland alone. They also help these youth with other challenges of low income or homeless life, such as help getting a visa, a high school diploma, or jobs. The organization works with the Parks and Rec Department, as well as other nonprofits, to get access to fields all across the city. Street soccer has been operating for over 10 years with offices in seven cities around the United States. And that is today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X-ray. Ilana Seskin is the founder and designer of Una Pluma. Up next, she speaks with Julia Oppenheimer and Andy Lindbergh about what it's like owning a small business during the pandemic. Ilana, thanks for being with us. Hi, thank you, Julia. Happy to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your about your company, Una Pluma. So Una Pluma was actually started in Kathmandu in Nepal in 2008 as a small little local clothing store there where everything was being made there and sold there as well. And um, after the birth of my son, I moved back to Oregon in 2013 and brought brought Una Pluma back with me. Um, And now, well, I started here at Saturday Market. Uh, and then with a small storefront and online, and slowly the online has grown and grown and grown, and our Etsy shop has become our primary source. Yeah, so um, you before the pandemic, you had a, a brick and mortar, right? Do you still yes. have a brick and mortar? No, and part of that was the pandemic, and part of that was kind of natural growth with my business partner. Um, for that shop space, I was sharing the space with a jeweler, and uh, and so there there had been some talks prior to the pandemic of if we would continue to share that space or if the clothing was kind of growing out of the space because it was very small. But yeah, then once uh, once the coronavirus happened, um, it 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 became kind of silly to have a brick and mortar. Really, it felt really hard and challenging to think of how to create a safe space in a physical store. 
certainly in March. And so slowly I, I transitioned out of that and moved to entirely home-based. So you found yourself um, in the unique position of making like loungewear and comfortable clothing um, in a time when people are rarely leaving their houses and the joke is people aren't wearing pants when they're on their Zoom calls. Um, did you see a huge boost in sales because of the pandemic? Huge, actually. So so what happened is last winter, um, I started an underwear line and it's just really comfy, high-waisted underwear and bralettes, just stretchy, comfy basics. And we've always done leggings and things like that, but started working with new materials on leggings too. And so the business had already was very well established in comfy loungewear. And then, yeah, once, uh, once everyone was sitting at home all the time, I mean, why, why would you put on anything that's not comfortable? And it, I, I would say, yeah, we've noticed probably like a tripling in our online sales in the last, um, yeah, in the last eight months, it's been really drastic and amazing. And and full of challenges too. I mean, it's amazing, and the production needs to be able to keep up with, you know, supply and demand. You need to be able to keep up with um, what people are wanting. And production during a pandemic is challenging, to say the least. So, uh, hi, this is Andy. Uh, um, hi, Andy. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. What? Thank uh, you. What challenges uh, in supply line um, have you had to overcome that, that are maybe more pandemic-specific? Uh, yeah, so for a long time, our, well, our stuff is sewn in Kathmandu in Nepal, but the fabrics come from India. So for the first, wow, two, three months, you know, March until May, uh, the border between India and Nepal was closed. So there was no fabric going from India to Nepal. So that was the first issue. The lockdown in Nepal was very strict for a long time. And so really nobody was sewing either for for a couple months. And then they needed to figure out how to space people more and how to just make sure it's a safe environment to work in. Um, and which results in slower production because really it's, it's less people, more space. Um, so I would say, and then and then the checks and balances within production are tricky too because of restrictions in Nepal. Um, there, for a long time, you couldn't go between districts in the city, and so often the design team and the women that I work with who help with designing live in a different zone than say where mm. everything is sewn, and so they were unable to go directly. They were just having to talk on the phone to people who were sewing versus being able to go there and explain things. So there's just been a lot of hiccups with that. And then the biggest one, I guess, actually is shipping. Um, Air cargo, we used to send things and they would go directly. Well, basically, passenger airlines used to put cargo under them. Um, Most big passenger airlines flying over the Asian, from Asia to, to the United States used to have cargo underneath them. And with no passenger or very few passenger fl- planes flying, there is no cargo planes flying. And so that's meant that we had to turn to couriers like DHL and FedEx, which are much more costly um, and also a little less set up for like, oh, you know, 2,000 pounds of clothing. Yes. <laughs> right. Massive, massive changes in that. And then um, 
So what has the pandemic been like in Nepal? Have they managed it successfully? Well, I mean, like everywhere, you know, they have sure tried a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I think Nepal went really extreme at first. They closed, They were very quick to close their borders. They were, like I say, they shut everything off by district. So they really stopped the movement of people. But this is a country, a tiny little country with, you know, 26 million people in it. Um, the population density is huge. You have multiple families living in one house. Um, and so, and the result on the economy of completely shutting down, like they did for four or five months, was creating, well, they, they're, 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 they felt the challenges that everyone does. What's worse, a terrible economy with people who can't feed their families or coronavirus. And so they, in the last six weeks, pretty much decided to open back up. And okay. since then, they have seen a surge of cases, um, as you do when you open back up. And everyone's trying to find that balance between keep things open or completely shut down, just like we're doing here. Well, and what a what a fascinating uh, way to be needing to look at the world that you're you're concerned. Uh, I would imagine, of course, with with what's going on with coronavirus locally, but then also dependent on, uh, you know, the governments of of two other countries and and how, you know how successful their policies are, um, and that you know the people that you're working with are most likely going to benefit from a, a tighter shutdown. But that, of course, then means that you're not getting the the materials uh, and the work done that that your business well, depends on. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it's so complex. Even when the government was really tightly shut down, you could work if you lived in the same district you worked in. Okay. You know, there was there was little ways. I mean, I think it's just like we've had to do here when things shut down. Everybody ultimately needs to figure out how to work. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're not working, how are you going to eat? How are you going to feed your yeah. family? What are you going to do? And so, you know, people did get really creative in how to how to work safely either from home or in a, a, a safer environment in Nepal. And I think, I, I don't know where the pressure came from for them to open back up. They have big holidays, actually. Um, they have like mm. a month-long holiday that is most of October, or kind of it splits half October, half November sometimes. And I think that the pressure came to open up for that because traditionally families travel home to their villages for that month. And I think everyone was just fed up and they decided to open for that, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of, you know, it, 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 you're right. It's so interesting to watch what we do here versus what other countries do, you know, and um, as, as we head into holiday season, you know, and we hear, oh, don't go to grandma's house and, and all of these things. And then you look at somewhere like Nepal where they were like, go home. <laughs> yes. Go to grandma's family. house, please. Right. And I think, I mean, I think it's, it, it, I think when people start moving around like that, it, it really does put a population at risk. And Nepal is feeling that right now. And it will be interesting to see if they decide to keep moving around like that or return to more restrictions. So how is your is your supply feeling pretty like at par where you want it now? Is, have you kind of worked out those kinks? Well, so we we got a, a massive order out before the holidays, which was 
incredible um, and uh, amazing that it even arrived here. It was 32 boxes, giant boxes, um, that kind of all scattered around the world and then suddenly made their way back hmm. to Portland. And um, so I feel I feel great about the current. <laughs> right now, I feel pretty good. I think, well, great is, no. Usually, annually, I travel to Nepal in November, and typically at that time, there's a whole bunch of kinks we work out. You know, there's like a built-up year of things that I walk in the factory and talk to everyone about and say, okay, we've, we've dealt with this. How can we do this? How can we fix this? And we problem solve and we work through a lot of stuff. And not being able to do that annual trip, I'm feeling the, the repercussions of that and trying to figure out how to, you know, get on WhatsApp at midnight when it's mm. the right time of day there and talk to people that way. But I definitely feel like we are missing. Um, it, it, it's not the same to connect over a screen, as we all know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Do you what are some of the silver linings for you for the for the past seven months or so? Well, I mean, certainly huge increase in sales and stretchy things. (laughs) 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 Wonderful. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's been really great. I think I, I have a new home and I've moved my business into my own home. And I think this discovering, discovering ways that you, you can have a home-based business that, that still allows you to like, go to work and be done with it. So I have it in the basement and I'm, I'm really, I've found a new balance with like, okay, I work from nine to three thirty when my kid's in school and then I close that basement door and that's done. And I think, um, just kind of finding this home-based balance. And I think, you know, in some ways, I think the shift to where people can create work in their own home if possible, is, 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 is a blessing in some ways because it allows you to create your space to um, really have your work life be more of how you would want it. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, a, a lesson that a lot of us are learning is, is how, uh, how to close that basement door. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Thankfully mine has like a little chain. <laughs> <laughs> you just lock yourself out. Yes. Nope. <laughs> um, so tell us how people can find out more about your company. Where can they buy their soft pants? <laughs> um, stretchy, stretchy pants galore. Yeah. So unapluma.com, um, unapluma one feather, U-N-A-P-L-U-M-A.com. And we, I, I'm still getting a bunch of the new stuff online, new new cozy sweatshirts. We have a new five-pack of underwear. Um, masks. Yeah. You have masks, masks that are very comfortable. Ma- you know, our masks are selling out like wild cakes. Let me tell you. I can <laughs> I attest that they're very comfortable. It doesn't, doesn't matter how many I order. They just whoop, go on. It's um, well, a good problem to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Masks. Uh yeah, I think that's also been an interesting an interesting endeavor in this pandemic is creating masks that are comfortable and really trying to to present them as something that's like your underwear socks, you know, making them affordable, comfortable and something that you can just throw in the wash at the end of the day, you know, get a pack of 3, get a pack of 5, whatever and have one for the day and throw it in the laundry at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I know that there is lots of politics around masks and things like that. But I think if we can all just 
see them as something that you grab and you throw in your pocket for the day and use as needed. It's really a benefit to society. (laughs) Absolutely. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Alana, for joining us this morning. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah. Have a great day, everyone. You too. Thanks. Thanks to Alana for joining Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Share it with a couple friends. Have a wonderful week. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.